Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. I was so excited for our big Star Trek film franchise series this season. All those movies adapted from Gene Roddenberry's original 1960s TV show. As a huge fan, I know that you geeked out over analyzing the adaptations. Absolutely. From the motion picture to the Kelvin timeline films, seeing the Enterprise crews on the big screen was a dream come true. Our list of source material isn't just all books and plays. We have the original series in our list of source material. You can rent the episodes to watch and enjoy and support the show in the process. For our Millennium Trilogy series, we covered films adapted from the original books that launched Lizbeth Salander, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played with Fire, and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. As much as I love Fincher's version, the original Swedish versions are the way to go. We also did our Die Hard series in Season 7. I can't believe Die Hard and Die Hard 2 were adaptations! Two of the greatest action movies ever. Well, one of them at least. The other is awfully fun, though. We revisited the classic Mary Poppins for our 1960s movie musical series. A spoonful of sugar always helps the medicine go down. Old Boy was intense for our Park Chan-wook Vengeance trilogy. And East of Eden and Giant were highlights of our James Dean series. And a fun time travel mind bender with predestination to cap things off. Find all the books behind these adaptations and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Dive into the source material for your favorite movies. Check it out today. Thenextreel.com slash originals. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And this is a Behind the Sights very special episode. We've got a conversation with somebody who who serves at a very special place 
right between uh, the public and the media and the box office. Paul de Garabedian is a man who's been doing this for quite a while, and people who kind of pay attention to where the numbers for movies come from might have uh, heard his name before or seen him pop up on the news talking about box office. He's now working at Comscore, which is a, a, it's kind of a statistics company. They do statistics for a whole variety of industries, um, but he specifically is focused on movies and uh, theaters and just kind of all of the uh, tracking of all the, uh, the, how movies are doing every week, right? And every Sunday, this guy zealously, meticulously, he and his team document performance of films each weekend and send out uh, a report and an email email uh, to uh, industry insiders in the media and uh, we happen to be on that list we are followers of that and he's we get this email every sunday morning we know exactly what paul is doing every sunday morning uh, right before he hits uh, he hits the media to do interviews about uh, performance of films and we thought it would be uh, an interesting conversation to bring paul on the show today to talk about his work and frankly his love of movies well, what do you say we jump into that interview then, Pete? Let's do it. Let's jump right in. I think I think you're going to like this, people. Here we go. Paul DeGarabini. Paul DeGarabidian, uh up from Comscore. Man, welcome to the show. Andy and Pete, I am honored to be here. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you. Um, you know, we are... Um, we love movies. We know you love movies. Um, we always, at the end of our show for each movie, we talk about statistics of the movie and how it did at the box office. I know that's a big thing in your life. And uh, and so we thought it'd be great to get you on the show and talk to you a little bit about uh, you, about your company, about your love for movies, all of that. Yeah, I love it. I'm I'm a big gabber, if you know me. I love to talk, <laughs> particularly about movies. And I've listened to your guys' stuff and you just get on a tangent or, or start riffing, and that's what I'm all about. Because when you love movies and numbers and all that, it really it's pretty exciting way to merge those two things. So I'm I'm all yours. Fantastic. For, as long as you want me here. Well, first off, kicking us off, uh, give us a sense of of Comscore. Uh, you're you're working at Comscore, and yeah. what is Comscore? Who is Comscore? What is the what is the kind of the goal of the company? Yeah, the, the company is a cross-platform measurement company. So we measure everything from movies, obviously, to digital platforms, to set-top boxes, home video, uh, you name it, uh, we measure it. So we're just in the business of compiling all this great information from all these different sources, big screens and small. And we also track social media. So we're, we're on the, the cutting edge of tracking the conversations surrounding movies on social media. So uh, it's all about where the users are, what are they using? What are they listening to? What are they watching? What are they all about? And so we really are in the business of having our finger on the pulse of what people are watching, uh, whether it be on the big screen in a theater or on their phone or on their computer, whatever they're doing. Also measuring uh, web traffic for for virtually every site in the world. So it's sort of this all-encompassing world of measurement of all things entertainment, uh, though my particular emphasis has always been on the movie side, but I also 
get involved in the TV side as well. There's a lot going on uh, with small screen providers and small screen platforms. So it's all interconnected. And what Comscore does is make sense of all that and put it all together in one place. I can only imagine how much data you guys collect and just like how how many uh, bits of information you guys call to pull out all these things and find ways to 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 give us useful information out of it. Yeah. And I mean, just for example, we measure 110 to 120 million set top boxes and recording that information, you know? Yeah. It's insane. And when you look at the number of online transactions, digital transactions, conversations and all that, it's something like in the billions of, of uh, pieces of information every year. So it's pretty incredible stuff. Um, but at the heart of it is great content, right? So you got to have something to to talk about, to measure the box office, to to figure out the number of downloads, uh, to to measure the social media impact and the conversation. So all that comes together in that world of Comscore. Where do you fit in with other sources of information like Box Office Mojo or the numbers or places like that? Are they competitors of yours or are are you a source of information for them or well, we actually we are the ones who get the information directly from the movie theaters and then provide that ah. to the movie studios so we are the source of all the information uh and we work with the studios and the exhibitors uh to make sure that that all that is working perfectly uh when you see other sites quoting data essentially it's coming from us because we are the ones at the point of sale around the world. So we're talking about countries all over the world. We're tracking box office everywhere in real time. And then the studios use that information. And that's where they then they send out their studio reported information to the world, but it's based on our platform. And we we were Rentrack, and you may remember the name Rentrack. Rentrack merged with Comscore a couple of years ago, but Rentrack is really the entity that is the box office authority and has that you know that direct connection to the all the movie theaters around the world. So it's it's point of purchase, direct to us, direct to, from us to the studios, and then what I do a lot of obviously is talk to the press to get that information out there uh, and disseminate it to all of those who are interested. But I look at every website, hey, you know, it's it's totally cool if people are passionate about box office and there's these other websites Hey, man, I think that's great. Why not? You know, the more people are talking about this stuff, the more passionate they are. Uh, there's room for all of that. But our data is the data that is, that is the engine that drives all of that pretty much. What's your, uh, I don't know, I, I don't want to get too much into this. I know it might it might sound like a sidetrack, but I'm, I'm really interested in the, the uh, sort of industry relationship, like where, uh, where how you re- fit relative to like Nielsen, um, you know, because I know there's so much hue and cry about Nielsen and it's kind of this, uh, we actually had a comment in our Slack group when we said we were having this conversation and, and, and they were referred to as, you know, farcical. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not that I want to necessarily get into name calling and put you in a a weird spot, but how does that relate? Where does that, what are they doing with their data? How's that? Well, Nielsen, obviously a huge name, uh, does a lot of measurement, obviously. I just think for, for Comscore, our methodology is just something that we're very proud of. It's something that is so well vetted and so well thought out 
that I just don't know how you could find a better source for that kind of info. But yeah, everybody's got their place. I'm not going to say anything, you know, negative about anybody. Um, it's just that Comscore sort has this all encompassing view where if you're tracking TV and movies and website visits uh, and social media conversation, we run the gamut of all that. So it's unique in that way to Comscore that we track all of these things in an all-encompassing way. And they all relate to each other in some way. I'm sure every one of us has been on every platform today, if not in a movie theater, which I'm sure we all will this weekend. So that's how it all comes together for Comscore. Now, now you talked about how you kind of are the face of of Comscore, at least as far as the, the statistics with movies go and how you go out right. and talk to the press and everything. Looking at you, uh, let's let's take a, a step away from Comscore for a sec and, and just look at you. Who is Paul? Uh, now, wow. make sure I'm saying this right. Dergarabedian? <laughs> is that right? Perfect. Perfect. All right. So, so, yeah, so who I've is- been actually repeating that as a mantra like all day today. All day. The first time I said it to Andy, like 10 minutes ago, I screwed it up. It's perfect, though. I tell you, I have been on live radio where I've had a host call me back afterward and apologize saying... Hey man, in 25 years of doing this, I've name <laughs> on air. I'm so sorry. I'm like, I'm sorry to be the one to break your track record, but no, you said it brilliantly. So I get it, and I'm not sensitive about it. Jeez, the name's got 13 letters. No, that's fantastic. That? That's awesome. That's, it's one that stands well, out for you, sure. Yeah, totally. How'd you how'd you land in this in in this side of the business in particular? I mean, as a yeah. as a fellow film nerd. Well, it just I I went to Long Beach State and got my believe it or not radio, TV, and film degree. And later, <laughs> the students protested and were like, "We just want film and television." on our degrees. So now I have, mm-hmm. I have two degrees from the same university. So I always loved film. I love doing radio, by the way. Um, that's one of my favorite things. But at that time, you know, very few people have radio in their degree, which I actually, that's a badge of honor to me. I, I love that. Um, but the way I, and, and then I went to USC, Annenberg School for Communications, and then promptly couldn't get a job in the movie industry <laughs> at all. I wound up at a uh, architectural firm down in Irvine. Um, I mean, I'm congratulations. Welcome to to the world. Welcome to the world. Welcome to the real world. I think I was 30 years old at the time. And, uh, I was like, I've arrived, man. So what I did was I basically, um, bought a video camera and started going around the country, filming buildings and interviewing the occupants of the buildings. So I created my own job and then I used the video toaster. I don't know if people remember that to edit footage. I mean, I'm, I'm old, man. I'm like, you know, um, and so that's sort of where, I got to at least exercise my um, love of film and at least filming something because in school we were doing projects and all that. But really the way I got literally into this business is seeing um, the chart in the the LA Times of the box office top 10 uh, looking at the name at the bottom of that chart, which was Exhibitor Relations Company, and literally playing hooky for my job at the time and going over there and asking the elderly gentleman who ran the business if I could have a job, and he gave me a job on the spot. So I just saw the name, went over there, quit my other job the next day, and got to work over there. And within about two years, 
to his credit, this wonderful gentleman, he was in his 80s at the time. He worked in vaudeville, man. I mean, this guy was the real deal. And he started telling me, I do CNN, but now you're going to do it. And my heart dropped. I'm like, oh, oh, no, I'm not doing that. You know, I'm not going on TV, no way. Um, But then he just threw me into the deep end of the pool. And I just want to say, if you have a great mentor, um, that's everything. Because he really, without this guy... um, he, he really started me on my path, but it was just a passion for movies. And I just figured like, if I'm not going to be a filmmaker, which I really want to be like probably all of us who love film, but realized I didn't really have the necessary tools to do that. I figured I'd go to the business side of the matter. And when I saw the box office charts, I thought, well, that sounds like a good fit for me. And that was 25 years ago and I'm still doing it. Um, and I've never stopped. I've been with, and I started my own company at one point and then, uh, uh, that company was acquired by Hollywood.com. And then after Hollywood.com, I came over to Rentrack and now Rentrack is part of Comscore. So 25 years later, I'm still doing it. I still love it. I still get up every Sunday morning to do the box office in 25 years. I've only missed two Sunday mornings of doing box office. I won't go into why, Um, but (laughs) but, uh, I literally, I mean, that's my Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. to about noon, just working on the box office and talking to the press. I mean, that's really a lot of what I do. Now, where did your love for movies come from? Can you trace it back to a a key moment in your childhood or or where did it all start for you? That's a great question. I think all of us have that moment and movies are so key in so many people's development. And I know that for me, it was 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, When that movie came out, I was just a kid. I was like seven or eight years old. And my father, who literally uh, was a rocket scientist, uh, took, uh, you know, myself and my my three sisters, my older sisters to the Cinerama Dome uh, in Hollywood, which is now the Arclight, beautiful theater. And the dome is still there designed by Buckminster Fuller, the geodesic dome and saw that movie and it blew my mind. And I, you know, and having a dad who was in the space industry and I had met all the astronauts at the time, I had sort of a charmed life in that way. It was like meeting the rock stars of the time. Uh, And that's what really got me into it. It was really my dad. He loved movies. We would go see guns and the the Navarone guns of Navarone uh, at the, at the Cinerama dome. And they would have these dioramas out front with like guns or submarines or whatever it was. It was really the time of the roadshow movies where going to the movie, you might even have a hard ticket. I remember even doing that for Apocalypse oh. Now at the um, Cinerama Dome. Like it was really an event and, and the ticket was really expensive at the time. It was like five bucks or something, you know, <laughs> for a hard card ticket. And that's what really got me into it. And I love, I love filmmakers. I have filmmakers in my family. Um, I respect the filmmakers like no other. Uh, you have to have a real passion for it. So for me, it's not just about dollars and cents. It's about that. But it's also about the love of film. And when I listen to you guys talk, I mean, I get it. I'm right there with you. If we were at a bar, you know, drinking whiskey, we could probably talk for hours and hours about movies because that that's what's at the heart of it. But it really comes from every time I see a movie, I think of my dad. He, he passed away about 10 years ago to the day. And he was the one who really got me into it. Well, and as a rocket scientist, it, it seems like you got some of the love of numbers from him also. You know, oh, that, no, that... I didn't. Oh, I was no. <laughs> the worst 
math student in the free world. I cannot tell you my the frustration of my otherwise mild-mannered father. His name was Paul also, who was a PhD, Phi Beta Kappa, went to Caltech, all this, and his dumbass son. I, mean, I was the worst in math. It must have been such a tragedy in his mind. But yeah, I, ironically, I work with numbers all the time, but it's certainly not the kind of thing that my dad was doing with the slide rule and all that. I mean, I don't have to slide rule for this, but yeah, it is, the apple really like not only fell out of the tree, it rolled all the way, you know, really far from <laughs> the tree. It became a pear. Yeah, it became a pear. It became a banana. Like that. Uh, so yeah, it was, I was the worst student. I, I did not like school at all. Um, I, I, I'm lucky I graduated high school. But what happened was my dad drugged me again in a rare moment of him being like forceful, um, dragged me to Long Beach State and made me sign up, you know, to go to college. And when I f- discovered the, the radio, TV and film handbook in those classes, that's when things took off for me. I got on the dean's list. I went to graduate school. I could have never imagined that when I was ditching high school and my Trans Am driving to Taco Bell with my friends, just not wanting to go back to school under any circumstances. Honestly, I don't know how I, how I graduated. But once I found something I loved, which was the study of movies, and I had some great professors over there, that's when it all clicked. So if you find something you love, you'll excel in it. If not, you're just like tuned out. Yeah, it's just amazing. And it just goes to show how uh, many opportunities there are in the industry for people. I mean, there's just such a great variety of, yeah. of uh, you know, of work that can tie into something that you love. So I think that's a, a great thing to have discovered. I think that's just yeah. fantastic. That was really the, the key for me was just finding something I loved. And again, having, you know, I had professors who literally brought James Cameron to campus before we even knew who he was. And this was back in like, I want to say 84, 85. And he brought the first Terminator movie to show us and nobody had seen it. And he brought, and then we stood outside the the classroom after, after seeing the movie, just talked with him for about 20 minutes. And I had no idea who he was, but that's a great professor, like turned us on to, we saw Ghostbusters before it came out. We saw all these really cool movies. Um, we learned about the business as well. So it was all this dovetailing of the business side with the love of movies and filmmakers. That's cool. It was cool. It was a different time. It was, you know, there was no social media, no cell phone. I mean, I act like I'm a hundred years old. Kids, there was no, (laughs) there were no ATMs. There were no cell phones, you know, uh, no screens, no small screens that you could talk into. It was probably Um, a film print that they were carrying into the class too. There actually was. There were physical film prints. That's a beautiful thing. It really Um, is. Yeah. And so it's, it's just like you guys, uh, it's it's not just about the movies, right? It's about even just the the emotional side of it. There's something about it. It's like any kind of art where you just kind of fall in love and you you start then studying movies. I remember when I went through my laser disc. Oh uh, yeah. Run. Oh right. hallelujah. Oh my oh. god. I I boy, bought every a- criterion. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I bought all the <laughs> special editions. And now I think they're holding my door open yeah, right. over here. But oh my God, I would just pour over the the commentaries, the uh, you know, the scripts that were included. I mean, I, I love digital downloads and they they offer a lot of that stuff on the digital downloads, but there's something like I'm a vinyl album aficionado too, and I'm the old geezer who'll sit there, open up the 
the, the gatefold on the album, start reading the <laughs> lyrics and singing along and reading who the engineer was and all that. Hallelujah. And for me, that's what movies are about, man. I would go through there. I mean, I remember I went to Show East many years ago when Thelma Schoonmaker and Martin Scorsese oh. brought a, a casino oh, to cool. the convention. And I got to tell you, that movie in its first version, which we saw, which I'm sure you know, had stuff that they later had to cut out. I mean, that movie was really intense. Yeah. Um, it was great, though. It's one of my favorites. But I actually, I I walked right past Martin Scorsese and I went up to Thomas Schoonmaker and I'm like, you are my hero. Like, she, <laughs> and, and she was like, how do you even know who I am? And you know how I knew? I saw her in the extras on a, a Criterion edition of a Laserdisc of one of Scorsese's yeah. movies. And I just knew who she was and I, I worship her. So um, that it's cool when you meet your heroes like that. And that was really That's cool. That's the thing. It's the thing I think people don't understand about like when you really, when, when you cross the transom, right? When you cross that gap from the guy who just goes to movies and enjoys to go to going to movies, but you know, goes to movies cause that's where the dates go, you know, to, to the guy who's reading the liner notes and doing all the things they, they don't understand why movies can hurt your feelings when they're not great. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, yes, I do. I, I'm telling you, we uh, before we started talking, as this whole Justice League thing came up, before we pushed the record button, that movie hurts my feelings. I haven't even seen it yet, but it's it's it hurts my feelings. Yeah. I'm gonna go see it this weekend. I'm yeah. gonna contribute. My dollars will be Me in too. your chart on Sunday. Yes, but I. Like I that. It already hurts my feelings because I I I am so, I love it so much. I'm so passionately connected to this whole thing, and uh, and I just don't think people understand us, man. No, that's a really interesting point. I actually feel hurt as well when I when I really excited to see a movie and it doesn't measure up, or the buzz on the street is that it doesn't measure up, or whatever. Yeah. I, um, but I think that's really important because the way you feel about a movie is important. So the difference to me between like and loving a movie could be two or three hundred million dollars worldwide. So yeah, there's some movies right, that yeah. people didn't love. They didn't, you know, there wasn't that passion surrounding them, but yet they get to almost 900 or, you know, almost a billion dollars. Had people loved the movie, you know, then I think it yeah. pushes it over the top. And, you know, I, for studios, do you want love or money? Well, the best is to have both, right? If you have a, like, take, for example, uh, The Force Awakens. That was the perfect Mel, and there's other examples too. Yeah, right. A great movie. You just came out of there on a high, but also well, look it what's going on with everything. Thor right now. Look what's going on with Ragnarok. Thor is just a blast. Yeah. I mean, I'd pay double for that movie because the experience I got <laughs> it was so fun. I don't tell anybody that, but I, I would. Um, I, you know, I think the best movies of this year, Logan, is in my yeah. top. Well, maybe my top ten of all time. Uh, I loved Logan. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was another yeah. one that reinvented the genre in a way. Thor took a concept. And I love the nimbleness of these filmmakers where they can say, we're going to take Logan, this character, in a different direction. And it wasn't just about making it R-rated. They were using the R-rated uh, or the R-rating not to shock you, but to take the character where that character really needed to go. If you're a hard-drinking hard living, you know, guy who's trying to hang up his spurs. You're not going to go PG 13 with that, but Mangold did it in such a great way. I mean, I, I love that movie. I, I actually will say, and this may sound like heresy to a lot of people because we're down 5% on box office this year. We had the lowest grossing summer in 20 years. We had one of the lowest August 
uh, grossing months in 20 years. We had one of the worst Octobers ever, but I will tell you this year, I've loved and bought more of the movies, which is my example of when I love a movie or my how I manifest loving a movie. If I buy it for my home mm-hmm. viewing, that's when I know I love a movie. I have bought more movies to watch at home over and over this year. Logan among them, Split, Get Out, It, I thought was great. Wonder Woman was awesome. I mean, I could name American Made, I thought was great with Tom Cruise. There, there to, In my opinion, despite the downturn in box office, there were some you know, I, I can't cuss on air here, but there were some freaking great movies <laughs> this year. Well, maybe I could, but there were just some amazing movies this year, but that gets lost when, you know, a lot of people, and I'm not naming names, but a lot of people like to jump on the fact that the box office is down at, at like at the end of August, you know, the, the sky was falling. It's over. People don't want to go to the movies anymore and all that. And then what, what happened in September? We had the highest grossing September of all time. Yeah. It's cyclical. It's product driven. That doesn't mean that there aren't outside forces. I mean, the industry does not want to wind up like Tower Records, which was a billion dollar company two years before it went under. I mean, <laughs> right, you right. have to be aware of the outside uh, forces at play, be aware of them and adjust and be malleable to either market the movies better, to make it so it's not just about event movies that are going to drive people to the theater, but small movies too. make every movie an event. So I don't have all the answers. I just know that, you know, there there is a change in the weather here and all the signs are there. So it's time for if people are worried about the film industry or the theatrical side or going to the cinema as an art form or as a way to go uh, see movies, it's not going anywhere, but it does have to evolve. What's your take on a movie like, uh, you know, this is last year, uh, uh, Miss Sloan, Jessica Chastain. There's a movie that we've, the guys on another one of the shows we do here on the next reel, uh, Trailer Rewind, did a, a review of Miss Sloan. And by all rights, that's a terrific movie that yeah. was absolutely and dramatically underrepresented yeah. uh, in terms of box office. That, How did these, what, what, hap- what was the perfect storm there? Yeah, well, I think the perfect storm is that adult dramas often get lost. Um, There's something where if it's not a super, like this year, for example, horror movies and superhero movies just absolutely killed it. Almost all of them did very well. Mm -hmm. A lot of the middle of the road dramas, not middle of the road by their quality, just, you know, a mainstream drama or an introspective drama or a movie that appeals to people over 30 a lot of those just fall flat because I think there's, first of all, there's too many movies being released um, all at once. And a movie like Miss Sloan, if it doesn't have some kind of, I don't know, a crazy title with a great hook or something like that, you have to seek those movies out. You have to take a chance on them and realize it's not just all about these big bombastic movies that some of the best movie going experiences with the greatest actors are movies like Miss Sloan. And, but you know, if you look on paper and you, you, you say what the movie's about, who's in it, what's the title, it doesn't exactly scream big box office, but there's a lot of movies that have been like that, but were nurtured through great release dates, uh, coupled with platform releases, meaning, you know, opening a movie in a couple of theaters or maybe four theaters, building the buzz and then slowly and carefully nurturing those movies and getting the buzz building, getting the, the consensus from the critics and others, and then building those to a crescendo of, of strong box office, maybe getting a hundred million dollars out of a film that in lesser hands might have only done 25, 30 million dollars or less. 
I can only imagine how complicated it is on the end of the distributors trying to sort all that out as they're looking at their options and they're trying to figure out, okay, so what's the right strategy for this? And do we have the right trailer for it? And it's, there's so many elements that go into the way that a film gets released. It's, and it's just more and more complicated with so many different platforms. And Would you say that a movie like, like for example, this is another one that stymied us, is Blade Runner 2049. Right? Stunning. It was fantastic. And and yet it feels to me like uh, it it's one that's going to go down as, as not having met expectations from the business side. I look at that movie like Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey in 10, 15, you know, they, nobody liked that movie when it first came out. And then years later, it's seen as a masterpiece. I, I love that movie. I also loved Alien Covenant that was earlier in the summer. That one didn't do as well as I had hoped for. Um, both of those movies I loved. I mean, they put it all up there on the screen. Blade Runner 2049 for me was a transcendent experience like the first movie. And on the big screen, it was just, oh my God. I mean, people argued it was too long or whatever. Look, if a terrible movie is too long, that sucks. But if a great movie is a little long, let it go, man. Just enjoy it while you can. And I thought it was, and Denny Villeneuve, one of the greatest filmmakers uh, working today, um, I think. And, and, And that's part of it too. When I hear the pedigree of a movie, okay, so if Ridley's not going to direct it, but Denny Villeneuve is going to be directing it, I'm cool. We're good. We're all, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're fine. I realize Ridley can't do Alien, direct Alien Covenant and then, you know, direct Blade Runner 2049. But some of it's marketing. Some of it's just the time. You know, remember, there's also uh, other movies coming out when, and this is all obvious, there's sporting events, there's things going on in politics. There's, you know, it might be an unperfect storm for certain movies when they open that they don't get that kind of attention. But if you, if you went down the checklist um, and, you know, unlike we who love movies, a lot of people don't know Blade Runner. I mean, believe it or not, it seems to me almost impossible. I mean, I had those people are barbarians. uh, They're crazy. I don't know where they get this. They shouldn't even go to the movie. They (laughs) don't deserve it. I actually had somebody tell me that they thought that movie was about hockey. And I, people had to pull wow. me off the guy. I'm like, I've never heard that in my life. Are you, in, are you kidding you me? Right now. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Blade I mean, it wasn't, oh, you know, boy. whatever. It oh, wasn't Blades God. of Glory. It was yeah, right. <laughs> Blade Runner. Anyway, so that, you know, just sometimes uh, some titles are less accessible than others. And sometimes those are the best movies for us who love them. And God bless the people who are willing to put up the money, which was considerable for that movie. And, you know, we, we talk the talk, but when you put up a hundred and whatever million dollars it was for that movie, when, you know, maybe the, 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 the upside was not going to be that big, but you still do it anyway, man, swing for the fences. I mean, it, it doesn't cost me any money. I mean, except for the movie ticket. And I love that movie. So sometimes it's about making art that stands the test of time and not just the opening weekend box office. I got another I got another trend question that I want to jump in here, Andy. And I know I feel like I'm totally no, sidelining. Don't your, worry, go ahead. Because you have a nerd question I really want you to get to. Uh, but I'm I am deeply interested in your take on the uh, the Harvey effect, the the Kevin Spacey effect. I mean, here we have all the money in the world and Ridley making some incredibly bold choices financially to to yeah. uh, to you know replace Kevin Spacey as a result of the sexual assault uh, um, issues. Um, is is this becoming something we need to keep an eye on from the box office perspective? Is there a a Spacey Harvey trend that that's going to impact well, the? I- 
I hope not. I mean, I, I, I can understand. And I, I, by the way, I've stayed out of this whole thing completely. Um, because it's just, so you're welcome. <laughs> um, you know, I don't even like to comment yeah. on it, but what I will say is that the filmmakers and producers generally know what's best for their movie. And if they're looking at this and saying, whatever is going on here, we have to fix this. Otherwise this movie that people have spent probably the better part of a year or more, uh, tons of people worked on, uh, really, you know, passionately worked on for all this time, all the fellow actors, everyone, you know, above the line and below the line who worked at it, on that movie. Sometimes you got to make some really tough choices. Now, sometimes it's just about moving a release date because it's not going to work or the movie's not ready. And that used to send a red flag. So nobody wanted to do it. But in this case, I think they made the right choice because sometimes there are things that your movie cannot transcend either through marketing or the greatness of the movie. And that may have been one of those uh, instances, but it's certainly not a positive um, situation for Hollywood in any way, shape or form. And for any industry, for that matter, it's it, it's a very unfortunate situation. Um, and hopefully we won't see it affect any future movies, but every day we're hearing new things. So who knows? Yeah, that's the scary part. That's the scary yeah. part. And here we are. I mean, six weeks out, right? And I'm, yeah. I was in the theater this weekend and there we go. There's a trailer and there's, there's uh, Spacey on the big screen. My, my heart broke a little bit for the oh, team that's, that's, you know, scrambling to, well, they make must this be right. editing day and night. They must be yeah. working furiously to, to get it done. And, uh, sometimes that's what you have to do. Um, there, but there've been other instances of movies, not for this reason, uh, thankfully, but you know, where actors or actresses had to be replaced and they're pretty adept at doing that. But yeah, that is a pretty short time frame. but you're talking about a master filmmaker, a production team like no other, and I'm confident they can get it done. Yeah. And, and really state of the art technology. I mean, this is, it, it's unbelievable what they can do if they, you know, what they're at least able to do. Anyway, That's right. Andy, I'm sorry. That's right. No, I, I was just going to throw in there and, and, you know, and then there are films like I Love You, Daddy, uh, Louis C.K.'s film that yeah. uh, the world may never see now. Who knows what's going to happen with that one? That's right. And the saddest part of that is, again, the people who, you know, when you, by the way, I was talking to a filmmaker friend of mine today, because, you know, I like to surround myself with people with more talent than I, uh, <laughs> who can actually make movies rather than just watch them like I do. But we were talking about the fact that, you know, you work just as hard on a movie, whether, you know, when you drop that movie into the marketplace and it gets terrible reviews or great reviews, I would argue there's the same amount of work that goes into it. Nobody's on a set thinking, oh, this movie's going to get a one-star review or a low uh, percentage sc score or whatever. So it, you know, there's people, it, it's like a, it's like a, a a company, right? But it's a temporary one. You're all working together towards this one goal. And it takes a lot of people to, to make a movie. And when you work on that movie, you particularly, if you're the writer, director, whatever you, the ultimate goal is to see that is to have that movie seen by other people. But with this situation, this unprecedented situation that's going on, some movies are becoming casualties of that. And it's really unfortunate for all the people who had no wrongdoing in the scenario. The, the I Love You, Daddy is only a little bit different because of it, the sort of nauseatingly parallel uh, story that, that it's that telling. That adds yeah. an additional yeah. layer onto it, no question about it. So, okay, so movie statistics. So you've got one side of them where you've got the budget and how much the studio spends on the prints and advertising and all of that, which they often try to hide from from all of us. On the other side, 
of the movie statistics, you have, uh, you know, all the people buying tickets, you have, uh, you know, but that that even gets broken down into number of screens it's playing on, the different formats that it's in, like 3D or IMAX, how much the ticket costs in different places, the country where it's getting released, the form of its release, uh, even the year of its release ends up kind of affecting it. Those are just like internal factors. Then, of course, you have all the nearly impossible uh, external factors like you know are, are there wars that started or b- right. giant tv shows that premiered a certain weekend or like we just talked about the harvey factor or other things happening in the in the world and entertainment that could affect a movie's release so with all of this stuff that you are you have coming your way how do you guys decide what information to use when you're tracking these movies and reporting on their successes and failures yeah it's a really good question because for some movies the per theater average could be the highest of the weekend, but that movie might be number 10 or 12. So nobody talks about it. And that's why we are, you know, starting to, you know, we're thinking about doing another chart, which we've done before, but I think in today's world, there's so many movies like from fathom events, you know, these uh, met opera, but also um, other kinds of events, film-based events that are, you know, maybe over the, you know, one night, during the week, but they make tons of money. Um, I know that IPIC is doing like magic, like live magic and doing very well with it. Wow. But that's, it's not a movie, but <laughs> it's heard of that. <laughs> I, actually, you know, you get Dr. Strange up there. I mean, it could be really cool, but, but it is very interesting what you're saying, because what basically what we do is we talk about the top 10. That's, that's a given. We do that every week. But when you start digging down, we have a product called Post Track, which, which digs into the demos, the demographics and the psychographics of the audience. And it's really comprehensive. And you get a pretty, you know, you get a really strong idea uh, on the first night of release, how people are responding to the movie. So, so, the press is very interested in that because sometimes the numbers, they're interesting, but, you know, we've heard those all before. Okay, $11 million preview, uh, you know, a $30 million first day, $110 million, whatever it is. Um, but when you start digging into those numbers, that's when it becomes more interesting. But I will tell you, most of the time, it's fairly rudimentary um, unless, you know, because a lot of this is just going out to the general, you know, uh, viewer or reader. And it's, it shows like, you know, it's people like you guys who get in more to the minutiae, which is wonderful because that's where the magic is. That's where the cool stuff is. I mean, when you, you know, when you look at the 3D portion of sales on a movie or you see that like a movie that you might think would appeal more to men actually appeals more to women. And so sometimes through the demographics, you may find out that, I mean, women love horror movies almost more than men and, or that, you know, older moviegoers like one kind of movie, but not another. That stuff is, is really kind of interesting. Um, so it is kind of hard to figure out what to fixate on, what to present. So every Sunday I write a commentary that just kind of goes into each movie, kind of interesting tidbits that I find. And, and for example, like this weekend, if, which I think it will, Justice League earns over $100 million this weekend. That's a $100 million opening just two weeks after Thor had a $122 million opening. That'd be the first time outside of the summer where two movies in November in the same year earned over $100 million in their opening weekend. It's happened in the summer. It's never happened uh, in November. So that's kind of interesting to me. How does that happen? And it shows you the power of superhero movies 
uh, this year. Every single one is done well. Hoping Justice League, you know, we have to go see it, decide for ourselves, but I'm hoping it follows in the footsteps of Logan, Guardians 2, uh, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, and Thor. So we'll see how that all plays out. Horror movies, for example. I mean, they have just been killing it, no pun intended, uh, this year. You know, from well played, from, well played. <laughs> from, <laughs> from Split and Get Out uh, to It, um, Happy Death Day, uh, Annabelle Creation. Jigsaw even, at, right? Jigsaw even. Yeah. I mean, you look at those horror movies from this year, they've all done really well. I think part of that is the youth audience, as they say, um, loves horror, always have. Um, and it just particularly struck a chord because younger viewers who technically couldn't buy a ticket on their own because it was, after all, rated R, the fact that it was rated R made it more appealing. It was forbidden fruit. You go to school on, you know, Monday or Tuesday and say, I saw it. And they're like, oh, wow, how'd you see that? Or who'd you see it with? How did you sneak in? Like, how did you get in to see the movie? So there has to be, for me, some level of event ism if that's even a word or an event (laughs) idea tied to a movie whether it be hey it's a superhero movie uh aquaman and wonder woman are in this superhero movie so you have to go see it or it's r-rated and you're not supposed to see it that makes it an event too how do you make things cool for the younger audiences who everyone says are staying away from the movie theater i don't think they are but you just got to make movies that speak to them but that also means i believe having executives either hiring or at least talking to the, 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 you know, the not typical person, like the, the younger person who can tell you really what's cool and what's not. Um, not that everything should be done by committee and, you know, all that, but even going to Twitter, if you put out a movie and there's a big criticism about something from everybody, right? right. This is free advice. It may be only worth that that price, <laughs> but it's free. No, but in some cases, it might be worth its weight in gold. If people are telling you, we like this, we don't like that, that's like people pay to have audiences watch a movie and tell them. Well, this way you get it for free. You just go on the internet. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's a critic, as they used to always say. And you can learn a lot from that. And I think the filmmakers and the studios who are smart look at those those comments and take them to heart. Not all of them. Some of you know, some ideas are going to be ridiculous or won't make sense for for a future movie. But there's a lot of great information out there that studios uh, and executives and everybody in the business can learn from that. Though, of course, your vision for your movie should stay pure. I don't believe in changing something just for marketing reasons because then everybody's everybody smells a rat on that. It has to be organic, but at least be informed as the as to what the audience is saying. Especially well, I think that's I think that's actually pretty important when it comes to uh, even just the test audiences. You know, I think test audiences can be beneficial to the filmmaker if they understand how to listen to it and kind of take that advice, but, but modifying stuff, maybe, you know, that they were already looking at possibly not working or things to change. Right. I I think that can actually help make a better film. It's when they, uh, they kind of start losing track of what it is and they start changing things just because, Oh, they didn't like this. They didn't like this. Let's get a new composer in. Let's, you know, tack on a whole new ending. And all of a sudden you watch it and it's like, wow, they really just made that. Yeah. You you can destroy a movie that way. It'd be like, you know, like they say too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, you know, if you have too many people getting their hand in it, then you're going to destroy it. But if you bring in a really brilliant chef to kind of help you out or collectively, 
um, some really smart ideas that may come from a test audience or even from the Twittersphere or social media, why not give it a shot? Now, if you do that and then everybody hates those ideas, well, then, you know, I don't know if you can win. But remember, too, it's an art form. There are no right answers. Um, and when, when you start treating movies like widgets, then you have a real problem. Um, but on the other hand, if you're just creating movies that are super esoteric, have no appeal to anyone other than yourself, well, then that's also a problem. But that's the coolest movies or the ones in my mind that really work is something like Logan, which I'm going back to because obviously I loved it. But that's a movie where they really took some risks. I mean, the way that children were portrayed in that movie, the peril that kids were put in. I mean, on paper, you'd be like, oh, my God, you can't do this. Right. And and having the anti-hero who we all you know are rooting for on many levels, that's a movie that a studio could have said, no, you're going to make it PG-13 because if we go R, you're going to alienate the audience and we won't have as big a box office. But because Mangold and company were so pure, and I've watched <laughs> the behind the scenes on that movie, of course, in their vision and so steadfast in it, the movie, you know, it, it, it was baked into that movie, all that love and or, organic love of the material. And it just really showed. Well, this is what I'm hoping we're going to see. And, and I think Marvel is actually, interestingly, doing some really interesting things with uh, these properties, right? You Obviously, we have Logan, we have Deadpool, where they're again pushing the boundaries and making sort of an adult-oriented, violent comedy right. uh, superhero story. We're seeing genre uh, within genre now and yeah. i am looking forward in the in you know of course i'm looking forward to to black panther that's i oh, just i'm absolutely very eager to see that movie uh and i love what taika watiti did with uh with, with thor but uh new mutants is one i'm probably more excited than anything else because again now we get to see another kind of horror what happens when we have that sort of horror thriller munge together with uh uh with this you know superhero, superhero film, property yeah. yeah i think that's really exciting it, it is really exciting. And that's the best part of all this. When you have filmmakers given enough latitude to do something really cool and studios and production companies willing to go along with their vision. And you notice too, there's a lot of filmmakers, and I love this, directors' names who come up who aren't the directors we all know. And it's not the same people coming up, although it's starting to now because there's this new wave of directors like Taika Waititi and, and others, uh, Patty Jenkins, who we've known for years. But I mean, this is now where these, and Colin Trevorrow, or Trevorrow, who did uh, Jurassic World, you have filmmakers who often worked in a smaller, um, on smaller types of films, being given the reins of these huge movies, but they're bringing a humanity to those movies. Now, that doesn't mean that's always going to work, um, but certainly when you... <coughs> when Star Wars. <coughs> Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but, but it doesn't always work, but some, when it does... That's pure magic. So, and and even a movie like Get Out, which I absolutely love that movie as well. You could tell that came from a really authentic place. When I went in to see that movie, I, I purposely didn't want to know anything about it. I went into a, into an early screening, and I'm like, "Wow, this is a watershed moment." It's a movie that kind of defies categorization, and I think is one of the best films of the year. Um, and again, absolutely. talking. And by the way, in that first quarter. You had another one of my favorite movies, believe it or not, Beauty and the Beast. I love that movie. Why yeah. not? I don't just like yeah. R-rated, you know, hard movies, you know, that really test the limits of your ability to watch and and all that. You know, sometimes these 
you know, classic musicals that are just done kind of in the old school way. Um, that can also be really appealing. And by the way, it's still the highest grossing movie of the year in North America with $504 million that Beauty and the Beast made. So um, that movie just caught on. It was a true four quadrant movie uh, played to everyone, grandma, the kids, everybody. And then, you know, we were talking about head scratchers earlier, American Made, you know, just a brilliant movie. I mean, the direct, the directing, it was Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise of old, um, that, but that's a movie that just didn't, you know, I think sometimes, uh, people have a lot of baggage and, and, uh, after the mummy, I think it was tough for that movie to, to cross over, but it's still oh, one wow. of my, that was pretty close too. Yeah. That's a yeah. They were point. like right on top mummy of each was, other. It's one of my, Oh, they were close. Uh, but the, the American made was again, one of my favorites of the year. I've encouraged everyone to see it when it's on home video, I'm buying it. So, um, again, that's my true test of whether I love a movie or not. But when you take chances and it works, you can get the best movie ever. But conversely, you can take chances and, oh, it can just be a train wreck. But again, I give every filmmaker credit for going out there and trying. Yeah, it's a, it's such a tricky game just trying to to figure all this stuff out. It really is. And uh, it, I mean, it's it's it really boils down to, you know, kind of these fickle audiences and what they're going to actually go see. And, and you never know. It's always like this gamble, this great guessing game it's that, a huge uh, guessing that we game. all and love about, so much. Think about it this way. What if, I mean, like if you have a car and it's the same model and you're making it every day and you're selling this and maybe every seven years you, you create a new one, you're essentially selling the same thing over and over. With a movie, you're selling a brand new, freshly minted product every weekend. That ain't easy, man. You gotta, you can't be the fan. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like, that's not an easy thing to do. Every movie is like a brand new product. It may be of a similar genre to something else, but particularly in this specialized or indie world, it really is a brand new thing that most of the time they're, you know, sequels are rare in the, in the indie world. And, that's a wonderful thing generally. Um, but like, you know, three billboards is out there. Lady bird. Uh, there's some real, you know, uh, killing of a sacred deer. There's a lot of movies out there that, that the specialized distributors, that's not just do a hail Mary, spend a bunch of money and, uh, brace for impact on opening weekend. No, you got to open it in a few theaters. Then you got to figure out, how well is it doing on a per theater basis? Then decide where in the country might respond to that movie particularly and start slowly rolling it out. And then at the same time, trying to get social media buzz going on the film, get the critics on board whom are, who are very important to the health and success of most indie movies, unlike their big budget brethren who just mainly key off of big marketing, a big opening weekend and a huge amount of buzz. To me, the real heroes are the folks who love movies so much that they take a chance on these smaller budgeted films that are completely cut from a whole cloth and have, they have to figure out like in real time, every day of the first three weeks or even a month of that movie's release, how they're going to expand it into the marketplace, how they're going to get the most out of it. Yeah, kudos to uh, A24. We talk about them quite a bit on the show. They do great, they do great stuff. <laughs> but also Neon, The Orchard. I mean, they're all really uh, just distributing some really unique films. And, and I it's great to have them <laughs> out there doing yeah. that. Um, there's a um, one of our, our listeners uh, sent a comment in or a question for you over on, on our Slack group. 
Um, what do you think uh, that this ever-increasing focus on box office means for the industry where sometimes these original ideas are struggling to be heard um, admits, uh, amidst all these endless sequels and prequels and remakes and reboots? Because, I mean, existing IPs, they are so much safer. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Did it stem from kind of the corporatization of the studios, the blockbuster craze born in the 70s? Where did this all come from? Do you have yeah, any that- sense? That's a great question because I'm torn all the time because what do I do? I'm always talking about box office, you know, and I can't just say to every person, but, you know, I love movies too. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. like, <laughs> maybe like I'm, I'm putting a number on your movie or on this movie, but I, I love movies. Uh, I think it just comes from um, a fear of risk. Uh, if you, you know, the whole sequelization of the entire world came out of this notion that if it worked the first time, it'll work the second time. And there's already a built in familiarity with the subject matter, the, the characters, or even just the title of the movie. Um, and, but again, if it comes from an authentic place and it's great. I don't care if there's an eight, nine, or a 10 next to your movie. It's not about categorization. It's about quality. But I agree with the person who's asking the question. Sometimes it makes it then harder for less commercial movies to get greenlit or to to even get noticed or to have the marketing muscle put behind them. Some of the best movies cost less to make than it would to market them on a nationwide basis. So it's hard to get them noticed it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing. You know, how do you get a small movie noticed if it's a small movie and you can't market it everywhere? But that goes back to the, you know, the Orchard and, and A24 and the other, you know, uh, specialized distributors who really have turned this into a science and an art and also a matter of good taste, figuring out which movies they want to get behind. So there's a lot going on there. But yeah, I, I don't like seeing it where everything seems to be, you know, created in a sausage factory because the cheapest ingredients are available. Uh, you know, I want cinematic, fa- you know, cinematic fast food. I also want cinematic fine dining. You know, we live on both. Um, I love seeing a big, you know, bombastic over the top movie where I check my brain at the door. I also love seeing movies that make you really think, might make you cry or laugh or whatever and really move you. Um, But all movies to me have an equal shot um, in terms of once you see them and getting into your heart or making you feel something, but they don't all get an equal shot in getting presented to you or being available. I've heard this for years where I used to get calls, like people yelling at me like it was my fault. Like, I want to see this movie, but it's only playing in New York and LA. I'm like, oh man, if I could, I'd I'd fly it out there for you. We can call you now? That is awesome. No, they don't call me anymore. My number is, you know, it's off the grid. But people used to call me when I worked at Exhibitor Relations Company back in the 90s, man. I get calls from people irate. I'm like, I feel your pain. I wish... You know, if I lived where you lived, I, and I mean, you know, cause you can read about these movies in the national press or whatever, but if they're not available to you, that's tough. But believe me, those indie distributors, specialized distributors, they will find you eventually if the movie's performance in the short term uh, justifies a long term commitment to more dollars, more marketing dollars and getting it out there. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, it leads to another sort of side of the question. That is the, that of, of theater owners, right? And the role that the theater owners and the chains are having yep. in, in sort of deciding what's, I mean, so my, uh, you, you may have heard my birthday is on Monday and it's a national holiday. I heard about so, it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of it's a big, big deal. deal. <laughs> and you're supposed to take the day off and see movies all day. That's what you do on. Everyone on, should uh, do that. I everyone agree. should do that. Right. I, I figured you'd be a supporter. Oh, totally. Um, I scroll down uh, my uh, theater list, my local setting. I go in a 
Fandango, I scroll down, it's all the same posters. It's all yep. the same posters. And I've seen them, uh, or, or I'm going to wait and and see them when they're on, in, in home. Uh, I know there are other great movies out there, but I also know that there is this trend. All of the theaters in my area uh, have been completely completely retrofit all of the theaters now have the great big seats with the they're all the electronic recliners they're all trying these fantastic things yep. to get me to come in to see their the atmos conversions they're spending a ton of dough to make the food better and have a wait staff in the big adults only sections i mean they're really doing uh the yeoman's work in in changing the nature of cinema but how much is that impacting their decisions not to bring in the movies that they know aren't going to be uh uh, aren't going to help them pay back this investment. Well, do you have another hour? Because it, <laughs> I mean, that's you, you a, now part have 90 two. seconds. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's a great question. You know, I, I got to give it up for, you know, I live in, in near Westlake village in California and there's a Sinopolis out here. And this isn't exactly the indie movie side or the specialized side, but they have a thing called hand picked where they show, I saw Clockwork Orange there on the big screen, Dirty Harry there on the big screen. Every week, a Big Lebowski um, Fight Club they just showed. I love that. And that's a big chain. I mean, these are the rocket, you know, these are the reclining electronics or yeah. electric seats, the bar, the great food. You know, you push the button, you're like in first class on an airplane. You get all that stuff brought to you. So there are people passionate, as long as there's people passionate about cinema uh, who work. And about curating, curating that experience. Great. Right? That's the word, curating that experience. What I would hope for more of the big theaters that have a lot of screens in their multiplex, just devote one to, to a small movie, even if it's one that that's on home video now, or, you know, or, or at least was much talked about because I feel the same way. I'll go look for tickets and I'm looking for one of those smaller movies. And that means you have to support your local, I guess, you know, you would call it art house theaters who may not have the, all those amenities, but show get, man, man our art house. I'm in Portland, man. I go to my art house film, and I'm yeah. I'm, I'm going to get angry letters. But I might be sitting in a bathtub, like a, <laughs> a claw foot. It's it's hipster and cool, but not for two hours. You know what I'm saying? Well, not only that, but I mean, it's like um, for me, it's like I know I have to drive at least an hour to get there. It's it's yeah, just right? on the well, other side the of thing. town. If you it's, have to yeah. reach that far to get to it. That's not necessarily a good thing. And that's where, for me, the small screen, even though this is sort of heresy, but I think it applies to some smaller films, play those day and date. In other words, if there's a film that's only going to be in four theaters nationwide, why not let people discover that film on iTunes, wherever it is? Um, Absolutely. And and I don't know that the exhibitors should be afraid of that. I know they're always this fear of a slippery slope towards day and date on Star Wars. Well, that that is not going to happen. But and and every filmmaker I know, they want their film on the big screen. I mean, and I respect that totally. But if you know, there are movies that I've seen that played in one theater in Pasadena, which is pretty far from where I live. I've gone and seen it, even though it was playing on the small screen the same night. There's a uh, there's movies like that where every once in a while you'll have a film like that, but that's more the exception. But I think there has to be a way for independent film to have a, a platform, a place where, and, and this does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all, but at least if I can't see it on the big screen and maybe I never will be able to in my town, I would even think the filmmaker would want you to be able to see it because if nobody sees it, it's like the, you know, tree falling in the forest. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just so, just getting the eyes. I mean, that's the thing. You want people to have the experience and I think that's just such a critical part of it. So Yeah, it is. And and I know for a lot of filmmakers, they will hold out till they get on the big screen and some people will, you know, four wall or you know, uh what you know, rent out the theater and right, and show yeah. their movie on the big screen and I think that's awesome. Uh, but you ultimately, if you're, unless you're just making the movie for yourself, sometimes I think you may have to compromise and have a small screen release, but hopefully out of that or, or in concert with that, you can have a big screen release as well. I want to jump back into financials, uh, for a quick sec. Um, just as far as historical data and information, uh, on our show, you know, we try to, uh, for each movie that we talk about, we try to kind of talk about the financials, you know, the budget and, and its box mm-hmm. office and all that. Um, but it's always tricky because we're, you know, I'm always trying to balance it for inflation and kind of, you know, compare, or it gets really tricky if it's a foreign film and I'm trying to oh, yeah. you know, balance foreign currencies and <laughs> it just gets really crazy. Um, but, you know, we do look at how profitable a movie is compared to its cost and all that. We also have this, uh, we've decided it's a brilliant comparison uh, that uh, <laughs> that everybody should use. It's called the Adjusted Profit Per Finished Minute. <laughs> oh, I like it. A- a- APPFM. That's right. You can, yeah, you, I like you can it. use that. Yeah, trademark. It's, it's good. Yeah, we, yeah, we, uh, trademark Andy Nelson. That's right. We, uh, <laughs> where you take a movie and reduce it to how much, is ma- how much it cost and or how much it profited per minute. Um, per minute. I, it, it was one of those things. We started talking about this. I can't remember what caused this conversation um, or what we were talking about specifically movie-wise, but we learned that that Disney's movie Tangled, which mm-hmm. was a, a short film, um, cost almost as much per minute um, as Avatar did. Sorry, not cost, but the adjusted like profit. Cost as much. It, like, I mean, it was the adjusted profit per finished minute, sorry, not cost, but it, it's profit, like yeah. when you look at how much those two films made, um, it, it's it was like mind boggling. It's like God, it's but Avatar was like so long and and Tangled was so short. So, was, but they I spent like so much metric. money. I think this is the new um, new normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's and it's we we came up with this because it's like you know there's there's really no perfect way to track a film's uh, overall success over time, or at least we we haven't found one. It is um, really I, you are not alone, my friends. Yeah, and it's tricky. I deal with this all the time, and generally you're right. You know, I used to go through. Hell trying to get budget figures. Uh, now some studios will just put it out there so they can get ahead of the curve and control that message. But you know the profitability of movies is something people love to study. Also, I've been you know a lot of people say, well, why aren't you adjusting for inflation? It's kind of BS to compare a movie today with an average ticket price of whatever 10, 12 bucks to a movie from 20 years ago. Um, and that's a valid point. Um, and that when we talk about record breaking box office, like we had in 2016 of $11.4 billion, that that doesn't really hold because of the, you know, cost of inflation. But I would argue that the fact that we had a record breaking year last year is pretty, is really impressive considering the amount of technology inflation that's gone on. Uh, in other words, when all you had was movies and TV and before that, just movies and maybe the radio and right. sporting events during the day, um, you know, there were 60, 70 million people a week going to the movies uh, right after World War II. Then TV came in, that dropped a little bit. Then we went to Super Panavision, VistaVision, all that to differentiate the in-theater experience from the the home TV experience. Um I think I've got lost in the weeds here, but I, <laughs> I but, but it, it is a very daunting thing. I just look at it this way. 
if you have a movie that cost eight million dollars to make and, and or fifteen million and it makes three hundred million or six hundred million worldwide, I would say that's a winner. I think it's tougher to figure out the losers because oftentimes on those um, studios are, you know, understandably reticent to give out the budget figure because the profit margin is going to be so low. But when a profit margin is really high, like on, on most of these, you know, the Blumhouse movies, they're known for that. They're famous for their profit margins. Um, that's something to crow about, but the opposite really isn't. Um, but when you have a really expensive movie that doesn't do well, it, it it lends a lot of credence to the idea that just throwing money at something doesn't make it a better movie. And in fact, uh, sometimes the simplest movies, and I've I've talked about this in terms of the dark universe. You know, I would be told, and I'm not originating this idea, but I I've heard this idea floated around that like Blumhouse, if they did the classic Universal monster movies in a smaller setting with more independent filmmakers, boy, you could have some really cool movies that could be super creepy and scary and make a ton of dough. But that's just you know back of the napkin kind of hoping. You mentioned some uh, some trends of things that have happened over the course of the history of cinema, like, you know, the, the, the real widescreen or the different sound formats. What are some of the other trends that have kind of drastically affected the overall box office in the history of cinema one way or the other? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the, there was a lot made of the home video revolution in the, in the early 80s, of which I was a huge part with my Betamax. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And still have it, although I don't think it works. Uh, I think that, you know... Uh, may have impacted things a little bit, but I, I always say that, you know, the only thing that can really hurt movies is either a, the, uh, there've been periods where the movie theaters had to be all upgraded. So, you know, and that happened and now we have these great movie houses to go to. Um, I think it really comes down to the product. That's what affects it. And also the in-theater experience is very important. I think theater owners are, have by and large today done a great job. Um, and of course, if they just would put more small movies in some of those theaters, we'd love it even more. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's a way when you don't have to worry about your sight line, when you can kick back in your huge seat and enjoy the movie, that's like when you fly first class, you're a lot more excited to travel. And that's how it feels when you go to one of these movie theaters that has that. But but certainly television impacted the business, uh, you know, the home video revolution in the eighties, the home theater revolution in the nineties, you know, but, but remember back in the nineties, I remember people saying that it was the end of the theater, the movie theater. I've heard this so many times in my career over, you know, all these decades <laughs> of my career. It was, it was mostly theater owners too, right? <laughs> this well, is the I end. Mean, I'm hanging it up. Well, the thing is a lot of them, well, that's why there a lot of theater owners don't like the idea of day and date release, meaning, you know, the a movie available on the small screen and in the theater on the same day. They're protective of their business. You've got companies like Netflix and Amazon releasing and Hulu and, but particularly, uh, you know, like Netflix with Mudbound releasing in 17 theaters this weekend, uh, Beasts of No Nation last year. Uh, you've got small screen providers getting into the movie theater. Well, not the movie theater business, but in the business of releasing movies that if it's something like Manchester by the sea, they can have both on the small screen and the big screen and might even get Academy Award nominations. So we're in a world that's constantly changing. We have more uh, content on more platforms available on more devices than any time in our history. And the fact that people still go to the movies to the degree they do shows the singularity of that movie going experience that it's not going anywhere. And that it's sometimes it's just a habit. 
I mean, you want to go because of a certain movie, but sometimes I just love going to the movies, man. Just sitting there with that flickering light and the whole thing. Um, if it's a really, really bad movie, it's two hours you can't get back. Um, <laughs> as we all know, we've all been there, yeah. but if you love the movies, you got to support the movie theater. That's our side of the bargain, but it's also incumbent upon the studios to create the best possible movies and the theaters to provide a great experience. We all have to work together in this. That may sound kind of Pollyanna, but, uh, but I mean, it really is true. If you, if you want to keep seeing movies in theaters, keep supporting them. But if the industry wants you to keep going, you have to have a great experience while you're there and hopefully it's a fantastic movie that you want to see again or again eventually buy or rent or download on home video then you get two bites of the apple from the audience and let's face it too when you're there at the movie theater you know the concessions are a big part of uh, the profit margins for theaters um and now they're they've introduced great food and and to me the greatest you're asking what maybe is the single greatest achievement in innovation Alcohol, my friends. (laughs) Oh, yes. Alcohol. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, when I saw Logan and he's drinking whiskey and I'm drinking whiskey, that's the embodiment (laughs) of 4D. I I was so happy. I'm like him. It was great. So that's that's just the coolest thing to me is just the ability to, to, to see a movie in a great environment. But there's nothing better, as we know, than seeing a great movie with other people. Um, even if they're not people that you know in that communal environment in the theater. Now I'm going to get off my preaching and I'll stand off my soapbox, but I really do love <laughs> the, the movies, but we need good movies to watch. That's part well, of it. Well, let's, let's scoot, scoot one more soapbox up for you. Uh, are you a movie pass holder? And uh, what, what's your thought? No, I mean, I, and I'm not against it. I'm not for it. I don't know enough about okay. it. I think there, to me, anything like that, if you use it, that's great. I think a lot of people buy things that give you a value add by, uh, you're getting a volume. Uh, you know, you're getting many tickets for one flat rate. I found that most scenarios with that, I'm not casting any aspersions on movie pass, but a lot of scenarios like that, if you don't use it, then you're not getting the value out of it. Um, I know that the well, theaters, that's, and that's like, the model, right? Well, it's they like, count on it. Yeah, it's right? like going to the gym, right? It's exactly. Like, that's, they rely on those people. I have kept many a gym afloat, gentlemen. I have done that. It's <laughs> on the way that up is on my back. Calories, so yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, you know, but but that, yeah, I, you know, look, anything to get more people in the theater is great for concessions and all that. Yeah. Uh, some of the big theater chains have come out against it. And remember, they could do some of these, they have loyalty programs and different things they can do on their own. Um, I just look at it as, you know, uh, another way to try and get people excited to go to the movie theater. Because remember, it doesn't mean that going to the movie movie theater is a less than experience to try and do this volume pricing or give some sort of deal. It just means that in this world where we have so many options, sometimes you got to nudge people um, to go out to the theater. But then there's certain movies like The Last Jedi where you don't have to nudge them. They're going to be running to go to the theater on that weekend. So, But not every movie is that movie. Not every movie is that kind of an event. And one other quick thing is that I found in our data that the movies that did terribly in theaters or got awful reviews do really well when they hit home video. They're always at the top of the chart because why? People who maybe didn't want to take a chance on a movie uh, because they either read bad reviews or they thought the movie looked terrible or whatever. Guess what? The privacy of their own home, they have no problem renting or buying that movie out of curiosity. So that gives a second bit of life to some movies 
clearly some of which did not deserve to do well in the theater. But hey, man, there are a lot of people were again, I go back to a lot of people worked on those movies. Nobody sets out to make a bomb. Nobody working on a movie knows what their score is going to be when that movie's over. Nobody has a clue. And then uh, that's a way for people to at least see movies that they might have been curious about. Well, we're getting about time to uh, to wrap this up, but we have one more question for you, and I think it's uh, it may be the uh, the most uh, enjoyable one to talk about. What is your favorite movie? You've talked about Logan being maybe in your top ten, but yeah. what's your all time favorite? My all time favorite. I just got to go back to it every single time. Is Goodfellas? Oh, wow, well, there, <laughs> there you go. go. I know it's just one of those movies. It's probably on everyone's list, but it it. it it stands the test of time. And actually, funnily, or if that's a word, uh, this year was like the 37th anniversary. There was some weird anniversary of it. And I got to talk about the movie uh, to a journalist. And I was just like a little kid talking about it. It's, if you awesome. go back, to me, it's one of those few movies. You know, there are very few perfect, quote unquote, movies where the beginning, the middle, and the end are perfect. Um and the music and the and the narration, you know, the voiceover and everything. To me, it was perfect. But I'll tell you, Royal Tenenbaums is on my list. I mean, I've got a really diverse list of movies. But if you're going to pin me down to one movie, uh, it still remains and probably always will be Goodfellas. Great choice. That Great is choice. fantastic. Not Thank you, beauty. Yep. This has been an awesome conversation, Paul. Thank, Thank you, you so guys. much Pete, for coming so out to represent, having you. man. Uh, talk to where, you guys where, all night. We got to meet at a bar. Can, we got to. I think <laughs> gotta. As, as dangerous as that may be, uh, we got to make that happen. So uh, tell us uh, where you want us to send people who want to learn more about you and uh, about yeah. Your work. So uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, and it's uh, at p dergarabedian. It's really a um, very original. Uh, in, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm not hard to find. But yeah, it's at Peter Garabedian. I post on there a lot. Um, that's pretty much it. I'm not giving out my home phone number because I don't want people complaining that <laughs> they you've already had that words <laughs> literally outside of Missouri or anything like that. But <laughs> I just, you know, I love movies and I love people who love movies. So it's just, you know, it's a passion. Well, I hope this isn't the last time we talk to you, man. Will you come back and join uh, us again? You got it. Guaranteed. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. We appreciate your time. All Thank right, you gentlemen. so much. Paul DeGarabedi and Comscore. Uh, look for links in the show notes. Uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. You know the drill. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, 
go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.